All right. I think a good place to start tonight would be by just kind of quickly recapping part one on Friday and part two last night. So uh, in part one, uh, we talked about uh, the place where Marx most explicitly lays out uh, the series of claims that are generally grouped together as Marx's theory of history. A lot of the things he says here are all over the place in many of his other writings, but this is kind of the canonical, concise statement from uh, the 1859 preface to the Critique of Political Economy, where Marx writes this, in the social production of their existence, men inevitably enter into definite relations, which are independent of their will, namely relations of production appropriate to a given stage in the development of their material forces of production. So we've got a theory of the stages of history. The totality of these relations of production constitute the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. The mode of production of material life uh, conditions the general processes of social, political, and intellectual life. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. At a certain stage of production, or this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms, uh, which is an interesting phrase, with the property relations uh, within the framework of which they have uh, operated hitherto. From the forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into their fetters. Then begins an era of social revolution. The changes in the economic foundation lead sooner or later to the transformations of the whole uh, transformation of the whole immense superstructure. Okay, so there's a claim there about how the different stages of history work, how any, you know, how society is structured at any given historical time slice, that there are these relations of production. Um, lords and peasants, capitalists and proletarians, etc. And then uh, there are there is uh, a legal and political superstructure. In other words, another structure, you know, this legal and political structure that's built on top of the economic structure and um, definite forms of consciousness, whatever that means, uh, that all sort of flow out of these relations of production. So that's his theory about how the various stages of history work. And then uh, maybe more controversially among Marxists, there's also a claim about how historical transitions happen. In other words, anybody who you'd call Marxist is more or less going to agree with Marx about uh, the analysis of the historical time slices. Not entirely. Uh, some people who are operating within the Marxist tradition might question parts of that for reasons we've talked about a little bit in part one and part two. But by and large, whereas what's controversial even among many Marxists now is this claim that's sometimes called technological determinism, that Marx is pretty clearly making the preface that the level of development of the forces of production, um, in other words, the level of development of uh, the ability of a society to produce stuff, uh, gives rise to certain social relations of production. And I want to talk about both of those. I should say uh, in advance that uh, this is going to have to be another pretty tight one, about half an hour 
there's an article that I owe Megan at Jacobin that I need to get cracking on uh, after we're uh, we're done with this. So uh, so we're only going to go till about eleven uh, tonight. So if you do want to call, just just go ahead and you know get right in. If we have uh, Crunchy back, uh, certainly uh, certainly Crunchy should go ahead and call. Uh, but if anybody else wants to get out of the discussion, please you know don't wait to get into the queue. But right now, I just wanted to say. Um, I, I guess, well, okay, so I guess what we should do is we should first recap a little bit of the discussion about the stages of historical development and then get in a little bit more to the theory of historical transitions. And I'm interested to hear not just thinking about what Mark said, but in thinking about what my favorite uh, 20th, you know, late 20th century Marxist uh, philosopher G.A. Cohen says, um, in his book, Karl Marx's Theory of History, where he's sort of offered an interpretation of what Marx is saying, and he's also defended Marx's main claims about this. Okay, so starting with the theory of the particular historical time slices, how they work. Uh, in uh, the la- you know, part two of this trilogy of, uh, of episodes, uh, there was a caller who raised what a, a, a classic objection to, well, to Cohen, but really to Marx, uh, because Marx, you know, is very explicit about this, at least in the 1859 preface, about thinking that the legal and political superstructure is this separate thing that's built on top of the economic structure. And there's a classic objection to that, which a lot of people have worried about. Plekhanov sort of worried about it, although Plekhanov did not have a good answer to it. Uh, Cohen certainly worries about it. Which is, well, hold on, even in that quote that we just read from the preface, uh, Marx says, um, at a certain stage of uh, development, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms with the property relations within the framework of which they have operated hitherto. So if those merely express the same thing, that seems like Marx conceding that um, the the property relations, you know, the, the relations of production, who owns the means of production and who has to work for who and how, how they're made to do so uh, is part of the legal and political superstructure. So that makes it sound like we don't have two things, right? So Marx talks about the base of the superstructure and people often get a little bit confused about this point, but uh, what Marx is calling the base isn't the forces of production. Right, the level of development of like industrial technology, that's like the base of the base. Uh, you know, this is Marx talking about the forms that society takes, and within that, what he's calling the base is the relations of production, and what he's calling the superstructure is all of the legal and uh, political structures that are erected on top of that economic foundation, and. Um, Maybe also something like the ruling ideology of the era. That's something a lot of Marxists have wanted to call part of the superstructure, although it's a little bit unclear. Part of what Marx says in that passage makes it sound like Marx would include that. He does talk about forms of consciousness, but um, when he's the only, you know, his use of superstructure says legal and political superstructure. So there's some ambiguity there in Marx. Uh, Cohen, at least, is only trying to include the legal and political structure. But even there, we've already got this problem, because if the legal and political superstructure is the separate thing from the economic structure, well, hold on, 
is an ownership, a legal relationship. And so this was raised in a call last time, and I'm, I'm not sure how adequately I answered it then. I, w- I wanted to take another crack at it, maybe say substantially the same thing, but say it a little bit differently and say that, you know, the legal superstructure tells you which ownership relations you're legally supposed to have, which isn't necessarily what the what Cohen calls the relations of effective control are in practice. Um, now, it could be that in 99.999% of cases, they line up. Uh, but analytically, there is still going to be an important distinction between them. And I think Cohen is right about this. So to think about how that important distinction arises, think about like, use the example that I used in the discussion with that caller last time, which is slavery, right? If you're in a society like the United States where the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, at least for non-prisoners, somebody who has... um, like just some crazy farmer who has, I don't know, lured a bunch of people into his farmhouse by uh, setting traps on the road uh, to spike their tires. And then uh, when the people arrive at his farmhouse, uh, he claps them in chains and makes them his slave. If this is just going on somewhere in you know the deep woods uh, where, uh, where nobody knows about it, then uh, that's surely that, relation that he owns these these slaves is not part of the legal and political su- superstructure of that society because the legal and political superstructure of that society says you can't have that. Now, because you have that mismatch between effective control and legal ownership, that means that like if the cops find out, they'll um, bust down the farmer's door and free all those people. Uh, so it's not a st- like having that particular island of relations of effective control, that little island of slavery within a free labor, uh, you know, within a society that has a robustly dominant uh, legal and political superstructure of capitalist free labor is not going to be a stable thing. On the other hand, if so many farmers started doing this, that, uh, that you just could not find a farm that didn't have a few slaves that had been taken from, you know, from unwary travelers, uh, then it might be that this became such an entrenched part of society that the law had to be changed to reflect it. That the, uh, that in other words, a very Cohenish way of putting this would be that these relations of effective control would select for a different legal and political superstructure, perhaps because the slave owners would, you know, if the government kept trying to crack down on them, maybe as happened in the 1860s, once again, the slave owners would rise up in rebellion and maybe unlike the 1860s, this time they would win. Okay. So I hope that makes the Cohen thought about relations of effective control, both clearer and I hope uh, more plausible. Um, But if anybody wants to get into that, please do call in. But with that said, I want to focus the remainder of the discussion on Marx's theory of transition, and in particular the way that Cohen talks about Marx's theory of transition, Um, because Cohen says some interesting things about this. Uh, Cohen includes in the book what I think of almost as like fables, like historical materialist fables. In other words, 
very stylized situations that illustrate the structure of historical materialist explanations, um, even though you know these aren't supposed to be things that literally happened. So, and the the structure that Cohen is trying to illustrate is how it is that it can be true that a given level of development of the forces of production gives rise to different relations of production, how that could be true uh, given a sort of very common worry about that, which goes like this, that the worry goes, well, hold on, but uh, isn't it supposed, you know, if if you're saying that the reason we have a certain set of relations of production is that this facilitates the further development of the forces of production, well, chronologically, isn't that the wrong way around? In other words, uh, if you're saying the fact that the further development of the forces of production are being uh, enabled by a given set of relations of production now is the reason that in the past the old relations of production were replaced with these new relations of production, isn't that chronologically backwards? Aren't you explaining... Um, explaining causes by setting their effects in ways that are just kind of the wrong way around. And Cohen thinks in ways that sort of mirror the structure of what I said earlier about effective control and class relations, Cohen thinks no. Right? So here's the first of what I'm calling these historical materialist fables that appears in um, Cohen's book, Karl Marx's Theory of History. Quote, imagine a productively weak society whose members live at a quality at subsistence level and who wish they were better off. One of them suspects that the introduction of treadmills on the bank of the river on which they rely for irrigation would increase the flow of water onto the land and raise its yield and thus enhance their welfare. He puts this idea to the community who are impressed and a group is forthwith commissioned to design and construct the devices. These are then installed at suitable points in the riverbank and tested all members of the community participating in the test. They correctly perceive the benefits the regular use of the treadmills would bring, and there is a request for volunteers to man them, but none come forward. It is a task relished by no one in society, nor is it feasible, for reasons we allow the reader to conjecture, for everyone to contribute just some of their time to treadmilling. Many full-time treaders are needed. It is agreed to select them by lot, and this is done. So, uh... Rebarbative is the job, however, that it becomes apparent it will not be efficiently performed without severe supervision. For that role, there is no dearth of applicants, and a number are by some means selected for it. Gradually, a class structure, supervisors, farmers, treaders, arise in what was an egalitarian community. One may now say that relations have changed because otherwise the forces would not have progressed, and the forces do progress because the relations have changed. But it is clear, despite the second part of that last sentence, that the change in the forces is more basic than the change in relations. The change in the relations change because the new relations facilitated productive progress. Okay, so that's one that's a little bit of a sort of, um, I mean, there's an element of kind of spontaneous improvising in there, but there's like a, that's like a little bit intelligent design-y. Uh, this next one is a little bit more darwin um, so here's the second of these, um, again, I'm calling uh, historical materialist fables and Cohen. Quote, the canoe is invented a rowboat society whose culture strongly supports one-man navigation. 
It does not matter how it does so, but for vividness, suppose there is a strong ideology of nautical heroism. I like that. A strong ideology of nautical heroism. And cooperative sailing is regarded as sissified. The culture is tolerant of innovation in the shape and composition of boats, so it lets the canoes in. They are introduced because they are easier to build, or because the hardwood supply needed for the rowboats is exhausted, or because they are very pretty. So powerful is the ideology that it successfully forbids more than one paddler per canoe. Accordingly, the canoes are used inefficiently, though we may suppose that they are superior to rowboats even when manned singly. Thus, a change in technology does not necessitate a change in material relations in the intended sense. We should, of course, expect there to be a transition to double manning in the future with graceful or awkward adjustments in the society's ideology. The supervenience of double manning would then be functionally explained. So I think that last point is, um, uh, I think that last point is really crucial that or you know, not quite the last point, but a point that was made in there is really crucial that he says it's not that this this particular innovation in the well, you know, forces of uh the forces of boat race winning production uh necessitate this um change in the ideology and the rules that govern the sport. Um but it does cause it, right? In other words, look, it would be possible to have the canoes without having double manning, but um, it's so much easier to do the canoes. It's so much more efficient to do the canoes with double manning that you can see how introducing canoes makes it much more likely that people are going to relax a little bit on this culture of nautical heroism that says, oh, you have to have be like one man. Um, uh, you know, one man boating in order to prove that you're not a sissy, that they're going to eventually relax on that because the sort of, um, because it's just so obviously more efficient that there's going to be this incentive in the future to relax, right? Which I think is important for why this kind of technological privacy claim isn't necessarily fair to parse as technological determinism. Okay, I'm going to pause there because I've got a couple of comments in the chat. Uh, Schnarf asks, what does Cohen say about the transformation problem? Uh, yeah, that's a big one. I'm going to put a pin in that and go back to that in a second. Silver Harlow says, do yourself a solid and Google knowing better slavery. And uh, watch um, and watch the video that comes up on the Knowing Better channel. The part of history uh, you've always uh, skipped, neo-slavery. It'll only take an hour, but everyone who wants to use the word slavery in a U.S. context should watch that video first. Sounds interesting. I have not seen it. I will check that out. Okay, I want to go back to Schnarr for the transformation problem. So uh, the transformation problem in, uh, in Marxist economics is uh, the problem of finding uh, – a rule by which to transform the value of commodities where value is understood as abstract, average, socially necessary labor time. Anybody who's in my class on Capital Volume 1 has that combination of adjectives etched deeply into their brain at this point because we've said it so many times in the class. Um, 
So how to transform the values of commodities into uh, the competitive prices of the marketplace. In other words, look, according to Marx, um, <laughs> excellent. Um, so according to Marx, and this is not really entirely original to Marx. A lot of this comes from Ricardo, and this is not totally uncontroversial as a reading of Marx, but um, you know, sure does seem to be what he's saying. Uh, Marx is sort of offering some refinements and, and improvements and trying to sublate the original Ricardo stuff. But um, but there are all these bourgeois economists culminating Ricardo who who said similar things that there is this thing called value that it, that either is identical to or maybe is produced by uh, the average hours of socially necessary labor it takes to produce a commodity. That's the real value of the commodity. And this concept of value becomes really important in capital because um, it's going to be, it's going to be all over the place there that the, um, and certainly when Marx thinks about the transformations of capital, in other words, the capitalist has some money, which turns into uh, which turns into commodities because the capitalist buys a bunch of commodities. If it's merchant capital, maybe they're just buying commodities to resell. If it's industrial capital, they're buying like the commodities they're buying are like capital goods that they're going to use to produce more commodities that they're then going to sell. Either way, money transforms into commodities, transforms into more money. Uh, one of the commodities that um, that money is being transformed into uh, in Marx's recounting of all of this is the workers' labor power, which is what the capitalist is buying, the, their capacity to work during certain hours of the day. And so, and for Marx, all of these are forms that are taken by value. So, and even using the word value, and a lot of what Marx says about it at the beginning of the book, suggests that this has something to do with exchange value. In other words, what something is worth in terms of buying and selling. But value understood this way, whatever relationship it might have to price, it's not an obvious one, right? Even if you are a very orthodox Marxist who ultimately thinks that price is some kind of weird, distorted echo of value, it is a distorted echo. Uh, because after all, uh, the differences in prices between commodities uh, oftentimes do not seem to track at all the difference in the uh, hours of average socially necessary labor that it takes to produce them. Um, so how to explain this? All right. Cohen, uh, by and large, doesn't really try. Um, in Karl Marx's Theory of History, the book we've been talking about, uh, he's defended all those claims that Marx makes in the preface that we've talked about earlier, but he doesn't really commit himself one way or the other on the labor theory of value. And in some of his later work uh, that's collected, um, so there's a paper that he wrote called uh, The Labor Theory of Value and the Concept of Exploitation. There are a few different versions of it floating around. To the best of my knowledge, the most polished version of it is in a book that Cohen, a book of Cohen's essays called History, Labor, and Freedom. And in there, Cohen sort of explicitly disowns the labor theory of value. He says, unsurprisingly, if you know who he hung out with, the, the uh, September group, 
of uh, analytical Marxists that included like the economist John Romer. Uh, you know, Cohen, Cohen doesn't buy the labor theory of value for the reasons that a lot of uh, contemporary economists don't really buy it. I should say I'm describing Cohen here. I'm not necessarily agreed. I'm agnostic on the labor theory of value. I think there are reasons to at least worry that it might not be true, but uh, that's not quite the same thing as asserting that it's definitely not true. Uh, but to get a sense of why a lot of contemporary economists, uh, even, I should say, a lot of people who are academically trained in contemporary economists who are politically sympathetic to Marxism, like John Romer is, for example, or like uh, my friend and co-author on the book I'm writing for Verso, uh, uh, Mike Beggs, um, along with Bhaskar, um, that... If you read Mike Beggs' excellent essay uh, called Zombie Marx, that's it, two words, Zombie Marx is the title of Mike's essay, uh, he has a really good explanation there of why a lot of the sort of arguments that people who primarily have learned their economics by reading Marx find so compelling uh, for uh, the... Uh, uh, for the labor theory of value, leave a lot of people trained in contemporary uh, academic economics pretty cold. Like, you know, Marx will say, you know, at one point in volume three, oh, uh, you have to have, uh, you have to have uh, some explanation for what causes uh prices to be the way they are other than supply and demand because supply and demand are forces that can sort of push on prices up and down but what happens when those forces are in balance and as an objection to the bourgeois economists the 1860s and 1850s that marx is reading and responding to yeah he's got those guys number he's right about them they don't have a good response to that um but uh as an objection to contemporary like marginalist economics, which of course Marx can't be blamed for uh, for not uh, for not responding to because it didn't exist until long after he died. Uh, that's not going to impress people who are trained in that tradition because they're they they're not used to thinking of supply and demand as these forces that operate on prices. They're used to thinking about supply and demand, you know, supply and demand schedules. So uh, there isn't there isn't this problem that arises of oh how do you explain it when those are in uh, when those are in balance with each other okay uh, so so Cohen doesn't try to solve this transformation problem for that and many other reasons he's pretty ready to just chuck the whole thing out but then the point that Cohen would make is that Marx's core claims about exploitation are logically independent of the labor theory of value. He says the labor theory of value is neither necessary nor sufficient to make sense of Marx's core claims about ex exploitation. Uh, to see why it's not sufficient, just say, look, just like, if I tell you what it is that creates the value of products, I haven't yet told you a goddamn thing about um, who should be holding that value and who we should be upset about taking it. Right? Like, if... Uh, if the if some sort of very simple form of marginalism is true and value is created by consumer desire, that doesn't mean that consumers therefore are being robbed if they don't get the full value of the products they desire. Um, 
So that's why it's not sufficient. But it's the reason it's not necessary is essentially what Cohen points out in that paper. And I think this, you know, there are other objections you could have to things he says in that paper, but I think this part is brilliant. Is well, hold up. Think about an analogy that Marx relentlessly makes, that Marx is obsessed with making, that Marx makes like a zillion times over the course of the 982 pages of Capital Volume 1, which is the analogy between capitalist exploitation and medieval feudal exploitation. So under modern capitalist exploitation, the immediate producers, in that case the proletarians, and their exploiters seem to be entering into a free contract with each other. Marx calls that a fiction. But in medieval feudal exploitation, it's the exploitation is right out in the open. That the peasant has to hand over a certain percentage of their crops to the lord, or depending on how the corvée worked in your particular flavor of feudalism in your country, maybe the peasant has to work a certain number of days of the year plowing the lord's fields instead of his own field. Um, and so the, the relation of extraction is right there on the surface. Whereas under capitalism, um, it takes the, for, the form of this free contract, but of course it's not really free because it's the dull compulsion of economic necessity that's, uh, that you have very little choice in practice except to sign one of these allegedly um, allegedly free contracts. You know, good luck to you uh, if you're not willing to. That you know that if you if you're not willing to sign one of these allegedly free contracts, uh, then you know you're get ready to, to to live as best you can on public assistance or on the margins of society, or if you live in a sort of early and free enough. Um, version of uh of the free market you can just fucking die um so that doesn't really sound very free so that the the worker is essentially forced by their circumstances to enter into this contract where they give up part of their product to their labor in the form of profits to the capitalist just like the peasant uh has to give up part of the product of his labor to the lord but uh what cohen's point uh, it's a very simple point, but like I said, I think it's kind of a brilliant one, is look, not only does this still make sense if we don't route our explanation of all this through this somewhat esoteric concept of value, but actually not routing it through value strengthens Marx's core analogy between capitalist and feudal exploitation. Because you can just say, look, workers spend all day working. I was just going over with the capital class that I teach. Uh, chapter 23 of Capital Volume 1, where uh, Marx uh, says, you know, workers are essentially, the products that they're producing all day are essentially, they might be translated into money uh, before they come back to them in wages, but they're essentially paying it all day into this store of products out of which their wages come. Uh, and, you know, even if the capitalist originally you know, got his seed money from, that was just his personal property. Maybe that even came from his own labor. Well, that's long since used up. And now everything in this fund out of which he pays the wages uh, is put there by the workers themselves. And so, look, you can say that you can uh, explain what's going on here perfectly well without without sort of getting into the metaphysics of value. You just say workers make products. Um and those products, or equivalently, the money that the, the capitalists get from the products, 
are then used to pay the workers, but workers are only getting part of the product of their labor. Another part of the product of their labor is being appropriated uh, without their uh, without their meaningful consent uh, as profits. So, you know, and we could just express all that in terms of talking about the products itself. And in fact, expressing that by talking about the products itself strengthens the the analogy with feudalism because. You know, under at least certain forms of feudalism, what's being taken away from the peasant is literally the product. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's right, Silver. Uh, let me just... Yeah, and Schnarf, that line, the handmill gives you the society with the feudal lord, the steam mill, the society with industrial capitalists. That's the... Um, uh this is the this is the element of Marx's theory of history that either in relation to Marx's original formulation or at least Cohen's sort of very straightforward defense of it is often referred to as technological determinism. I don't think you have to say it's deterministic. I think it can just be a probabilistic claim, but that there's you know certainly a, a claim about the primacy of the forces of production over the relations of production. And unless anybody you know, I mean, if anybody does want to call in, I'll I'll quickly take a, a call or two at the end. But otherwise, we'll 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 sort of end tonight with this point that um, what what's going on. So there are two ways that you could criticize Cohen. One is you could say that he's getting Marx wrong. That Marx isn't really saying either in the 1859 preface or in other places where you might think he's rethought his views, isn't really saying what the things that Cohen's sort of reading of it captures. So that's the you could know, just think it's bad Marx exegesis. But if you think it's good Marx exegesis, and for the record, I do think it's good Marx exegesis. I think that I think that Cohen is, I think that Cohen is in fact capturing uh, the claims that Marx is pretty clearly making in the preface. Um, so if you think that, then the next way you can criticize it is say, okay, well, that might be what Marx thought, but it's not true. So if we're going to be, you know, if we're interested in being good Marxists now, Marxists in the sense of scientific socialists, socialists who are using our best empirical knowledge of the world in order to figure out how history progresses and how capitalism works in order for us to know how we can overcome you know, capitalism, then, you know, being a good Marxist maybe means rejecting certain aspects of what Marx says about this. So this takes us back to the Bretter debate. And Bretter's going to tell the story, he was talking about this with a caller last time, uh, where what is, what's going on uh, with the ri initial rise of capitalism in England is that it's this sort of strange historical fluke that ultimately happens because of the Black Plague. Um and the way that that disrupts things in that particular country at that particular time. So really there are these like very contingent, very local factors that are, that are doing like all this explanatory heavy lifting in ways that don't really make sense. If you have this view that, well, the forces are just have a sort of certain tendency to develop over time. And then the changes in the forces are ultimately what's driving the changes in the relations. And what I think, and you know, and, and uh, Steve Paxton, who is our celebrity caller from uh, from last night, he wrote a uh, he wrote a really good book. Uh, everybody should read called Unlearning Marx. Um, and he, he was a student of G. A. Cohen uh, at Oxford. So what?
Paxton pointed out, and I think is correct, is to say, well, well, hold on. Uh, <laughs> so I just saw Silver saying, but what did Marks and Cohen say about S5 modal recurring joke? Never mind. Um, so what uh, we should just do, we should just do an episode that's devoted to nothing but modal logic. That would actually be kind of fun. But uh, I have to figure out how to translate that into the language of uh, of Colin, do an audio-only version of that. or um, I guess I could do video now, but uh, they don't have screen sharing yet, so I don't know how I could do a board to write down symbols, but I will think about that one. Uh, in any case, um, the – nice. Uh, I like that. Schnarf says he's the student of the public library and stealing books out of Barnes and Noble. Uh, outstanding. So, okay. So the Paxton point, which I think is true about Brenner and all of that, is just this: that look, the story about how the capitalist mode of production got its first foothold in the world. The accurate story about that might, in fact, be the one laid out by Brenner. This very local, very contingent. That it's like it's kind of a fluke. But that's also a different question. All right, so, um, man, I really want to steal, I really want to spoil the plot of uh, the movie Triangle of Sadness. I uh, saw that yesterday, and it's, it's on my mind to use as an example here. But since the part I want to talk about is part three, uh, a lot of people who are probably going to see that movie haven't seen it yet, I'm going to hold back. But, like, there are lots of ways in which... Um, a new mode of production could get its first foothold into the world and then go nowhere and eventually um, be sort of swapped out and dissolved back into the, um, into the, uh, the original mode of production. All right. So, you know, you could get, um, Look, our example earlier when we were talking about legal ownership and effective control of the farmer, like the horror movie farmer, uh, out in the middle of the backwoods where, you know, there isn't much law enforcement who uh, traps unwary uh, travelers and enslaves them on his farm. Uh, you know, like, yeah, he's got a foothold. Maybe if he has enough land, uh, it could even be a big foothold. Uh but then it's just going to be stamped down by the legal and political infrastructure, uh, superstructure um, enforcing anti-slavery laws and it'll end. Or the Soviet Union was, whether you think of that as a sort of flawed and authoritarian version of socialism or as some third thing that wasn't capitalist or wasn't socialist or whatever, whatever it was, it looks like a somewhat different mode of production than you know, standard Western capitalism. And it got a foothold through the Russian Revolution. It expanded at one point to about a third of the world, um, a third of the world's population. It, you know, I, I believe at one point was living under that system at the sort of height of uh, the Cold War. Uh, and then it collapsed again, uh, largely, by the way, because it didn't do a good enough job of facilitating the growth of the forces of production. So all of which is just to say that your story about how it is that a new mode of production gains its first foothold in the world is just not the same question as how does it become the globally dominant mode of production. And I think it's, I think even if you think that some sort of quote unquote technological determinist story is ultimately correct on the second question, 
it makes perfect sense that the first question, the answer is often some patchwork of local, of like contingent local answers. What were the circumstances in such and such country at such and such time that gave rise to this? And, but then the question is, well, if it didn't become globally dominant, why not? And it really seems like the why not is it doesn't do a good enough job often. Not all, it's not the only possible why not, right? But it doesn't do a good enough job of developing the forces of production. And it is pretty plausible that at least a necessary condition for the triumph of capital over the feudal Ancien regime on a global scale from, you know, over the course of several centuries, um, that at least a necessary condition for that was, in fact, maybe even a sufficient condition, certainly a necessary one, was, in fact, that it did such a better job than feudalism did of developing the forces of production, which... um, I guess takes us back to the um, the point about one of the reasons all this is politically relevant, which is that the project of socialism. This is this is my beef with uh, like people who say they're eco socialists who advocate degrowth. The socialist project is not rolling back the forces of production. <laughs> Right, the uh, the socialist project is not regressing to something before abundant industrial modernity, uh, so we all become subsistence farmers again, or something like that. The socialist project is a more democratic and egalitarian version of modernity, um, but uh, Jordan points out in the chat, I can't have beef with them; they demand Beyond Meat. So I guess at that point the discussion has reached a deadlock because we can't agree on what to eat. Um, so I'm sure this is material that we're going to be returning to in future episodes, uh, rooms, whatever we're calling these. But, uh, meanwhile, for now, at least this concludes our little trilogy of episodes on historical materialism and Marx and Cohen and all of that. Um, so we're going to be switching gears quite a bit tomorrow at, uh, three in the afternoon EST. So that's noon, California, uh, two o'clock Chicago. Uh, we're going to be talking i'm going to be talking to bronco uh marchetic uh who in fact lives in chicago i actually stayed with him when i was in chicago a few weeks ago uh about his uh article for uh for jacobin about the upcoming midterm elections so we're going from 1859 and uh you know karl marx's preface and all the claims about historical materialism made there to 2022 so tomorrow three eastern to chicago noon california i'm gonna be talking to bronco uh about his jacobin article republicans are planted all out assault on the working class if they win next week um which should be should be a really interesting discussion I think anybody who's familiar with Bronco knows that he cannot be accused of being an apologist for the Democratic Party. To uh, to put it mildly, he literally wrote a book about how bad Joe Biden was. Yesterday's man, the case against Joe Biden for Verso. He um, he did. Uh, he constantly speaks out against uh, the sort of foreign policy consensus of the Democratic Party and in favor of de-escalation. In uh, in Ukraine, um, you know, I I think, you know, he has I think some of the same preoccupations 
as certain contrarian journalists will remain unnamed, but I think he's a smarter and more compelling version of those preoccupations. So when he says that if the Republicans win on Tuesday, it's going to be a massive assault on the working class, which I think he backs up very well that article, that's that's worth that's worth listening to. It's worth talking to about. So uh, we're going to take a break from Marxist theory, uh, do a um, do a little bit of contemporary electoral politics on uh, on Monday. That's going to be again noon California, two Chicago, three uh, God's time zone, Eastern Standard. I will see everybody then.